0: Good morning and welcome to this week's public affairs program. I'm Amy Adams. This week, Joshua Claiborne, local attorney and Lincoln scholar and historian, talks about Abraham Lincoln. I want to start with this gentleman here, George Honig, uh, a local sculptor, lived from 1874 to 1962. Some of you may recognize the name. Uh, He was actually a nationally famous sculptor, but right down the road, right outside the Coliseum, you'll see two very prominent sculptures that he made as well. About 80 years ago, uh, he told the story when he was studying under another famous national sculptor, Harmon McNeil, a New York sculptor. And McNeil was working on a Lincoln statue, and Honig commented to a colleague that Lincoln spent a lot of years near Honig's hometown of Rockport, Indiana. A fellow student in the class replied, Nonsense. Of course Lincoln and his family went through Indiana on their way to Illinois, but they weren't there for more than a few days. Today, as a hundred years ago, the Lincoln story in Indiana is largely unknown. Many authors have viewed Lincoln's years as inconsequential. To some, it actually had a negative impact on Lincoln. A lot of what we know about Lincoln's youth in Indiana comes from uh, this man, William Herndon, who was Lincoln's law partner, and then in 1865 came to this area to interview people that knew Lincoln and his youth. Here's what that research found for him and what a lot of people now think about his youth in Indiana. Jesse Week uh, took those notes and wrote, Lincoln rose from a lower depth than most men, from a stagnant, putrid pool. Yikes. Oh, I'm getting ahead here. Then you have... Ward Hill Lamont's 1872 biography, ghost written, by Chauncey Black, who described Indiana as the diamond glowing on the dung hill. Now, the diamond is Lincoln, the dung hill is Indiana. And if that's not bad enough, you have our very own senator, Albert Beveridge, who served for uh, Indiana in Washington, DC, in the early 1900s and wrote that Lincoln's Indiana neighbors were ignorant, rough mannered, vividly superstitious, Consumers of incredible quantities of whiskey and tobacco and inclined to chewing, smoking, snuffing, and corncob pipes puffing. Their sense of modesty was embryonic. They lived in cabins that were ill-kempt, dirty in the extreme, infested with vermin, and their fighting and swearing were accompanied by low-thinking, repellent, living, filthy talk. Yikes. Now, maybe you might want to have a beer with people like that, but that's not the type of people you want being the model uh, citizen of your state. Now, bolstered by a lot of this, uh, another popular material at the time, there was an incredibly popular book at the time. A lot of people have forgotten about this, but it's called Hoosier Schoolmaster, and it was really one of the most famous books in the early 1900s, and it associated people from Indiana with ignorance, poverty, hardships, and an odd dialect. Now, I might agree with the odd dialect, depending on where you're from, but I think the rest really fails to tell the full story Indiana, and for that matter, Lincoln. Against this backdrop, I was really pleased that a group behind a recent CNN documentary a couple years ago reached out and asked me to talk specifically in the documentary about Lincoln's youth, and I said, finally, there's going to be a prominent documentary that gives Indiana its due in the Lincoln story. The production uh, is a six-part series. Each episode is about 30 minutes long, and it's Narrated by Sterling K. Brown. Some of you will know Sterling K. Brown. That Tim on the left, he's an actor uh, in the NBC drama series This Is Us. There's several other famous people. Conan O'Brien was in it. Uh, uh, some many prominent historians. Obviously, historians were were the focus of it. And Conan may seem like an odd one, but he's actually a really accomplished a historian. Who, when he was an undergrad at Harvard, did his thesis paper on Lincoln, did a lot of studying on Lincoln's humor, so he had every reason to be there. Um, Actually got some good jokes from Conan out of that. This documentary really tries to tell the unvarnished truth uh, about Lincoln, and it does a decent job of that. Unlike a lot of folks, it doesn't just prop him up as a um, a, a sinless, perfect person. It, It shows Lincoln in all of his glory, as well as his warts. Um, And if you're interested, you can still see it on Hulu, there's YouTube TV, and CNN Go, uh, and Sling as well. And it did well. I mean, it, it, it had very high ratings at the time. But to be perfectly honest among a group here of friends, I was a little disappointed by how it did treat the Indiana years. Not that it was necessarily inaccurate, but like so many of them, it glossed over this period of time. Lincoln spent his youth here from 1816 when he was seven years old to 1830 when he was 21. Reflect for a moment in your own life from age 7 to 21. How important was that period to you, who you are, what you believe, and how you perceive the world? Pretty important, I suspect. So it was with Lincoln as well. And so for the benefit of you all... I'd like to correct a few of the historical deficiencies and highlight some aspects of youth that I think far too few of us realize or learn when we talk about history. Here is the uh, trip that Lincoln took. He was born in Hodgenville in Kentucky, um, and, and then with his family in the fall of 1816 set out along this path, path packed all of their belongings with uh, Lincoln, was, uh, who was seven, his sister, who was nine, Sarah as well as his father and mother. They settled in what was really an unbroken forest. Uh, There's a primitive map of what it looked like at the time. Um, Native Americans had just left the area not long before. In fact, Abraham Lincoln's grandfather, also named Abraham, had been killed by Native Americans. And that's who Abraham was named after. So certainly, those stories loomed large in the family history. In 1818, the General Assembly created Spencer County from what was then Warwick and Perry counties. That's really what the map looked like when the Lincolns moved here. And they settled on land that was unmarked. Then Abraham's father returned to Kentucky, uh, brought some additional belongings. They likely came in uh, the winter, late winter of 1816. The the messy, unorganized uh, land surveying of Kentucky was a, a big reason why they decided to come here. At the time, if you lived in Kentucky, it wasn't unheard of for somebody to come and steal your land because it wasn't recorded well, but also we know that slavery, being legal in Kentucky, was also a driver of the family. They were opposed to it and didn't really want to be around it. A lot of Lincoln's neighbors uh, were like them. They moved here from Kentucky by way of Pennsylvania, Virginia, and North Carolina. They were seeking opportunity, and the open frontier provided that because you could claim your own land, you could carve a living out, out out of that land with livestock, with farming, and be free of Um, those other type of shackles that people felt back east. They would often bring their family with them as well. I have to give mention here to Lincoln's father, Thomas. A a lot of histories portray the relationship between Abraham and his father, Thomas, as a strained one. And maybe looking at that picture, you can understand why. He seems like a pretty stern kind of guy. In reality, uh, Thomas was a hard worker. People later often talk about how poor Lincoln was, and I want to stress that when they arrived, they absolutely were poor. poor. Uh, But Thomas worked very hard. Um, By the time they left in 1830, the family had about 20 acres of land, all sorts of cattle and livestock, and he was quite an accomplished carpenter. In fact, we here in Evansville are lucky because if you head over to the Evansville Museum, you can see some pieces of furniture that Thomas created with his own hands. Um, And that piece is average but there are some surviving pieces from Thomas as well that are incredibly ornate and it really just goes to show that he was a true craftsman and that he worked hard at his job and he took it very seriously that's something that doesn't really fit with a lot of the history that we hear nowadays that you know, Thomas was uh, really hard on Lincoln, um, and that he was poor and shiftless at times as well, but I think some of that's unfair. He certainly spent a lot of time working hard at the field, and it's true that his father was, had a lot to do with that because his father grew up at a time where you survived by making your living out of the land. Lincoln, who got a hold of books uh, throughout his time here in Indiana, decided he wanted to take a different course, of course. This is a map of Lincoln's neighborhood, and that line going from east to west is a road, basically the Boonville-New Harmony Road, but it stretched all the way from Corydon in southeast Indiana, which was the state capital at the time, all the way west to New Harmony. And that road had a lot of traffic. And not just any traffic, but a lot of learned people. And we here know how important New Harmony was uh, to Indiana at the time. But a lot of people in the rest of the country don't really realize that at this time, while the Lincolns were here, on a per capita basis, there were few places where you had more accomplished and intelligent people than in New Harmony, Indiana. And those people were traveling very often from Cordon to New Harmony. Well, that road goes right past the Lincoln Farm. And there were fences that went right on that road. And it was not unheard of for Lincoln to sit on that fence and talk to those people as they walk past that road so he had a chance in this situation to meet all sorts of diverse people and importantly very intelligent people so again I'm pushing back a little bit on that unfair characterization I started off with that so many people uh, think about at the time and certainly that was there that was here he saw a lot of different diverse culture uh, of all sorts but also Indiana was a very growing state when Spencer County was formed you can see Indiana in 1816 what it looked like The north of Indiana was entirely undeveloped. Uh, The the counties there are large. There isn't a lot going on. By the time the Lincolns left, the map in Indiana looked like the right. A lot of growth had happened. Um, A lot of of economic development, a lot of population booming, um, uh, just a lot of change. I mentioned that when they moved here, they absolutely were poor. On the left is a a lean-to. There was only three sides to the house that the Lincolns lived in when they moved here in November and December in the winter. Um, That's incredible. Um, I certainly wouldn't uh, probably be able to survive that, but here Lincoln is seven years old, along with his uh, sister, who's two years older, and surviving that. Now, by the time they left, again, a lot of tremendous change, a lot of growth, and that's really um, a testament to Lincoln and his family, his father, his mother, and all the people that were around them that helped make all of that happen. Here's our lovely Ohio River, which we can look out the window and see as well. A lot of the rapid growth that occurred in Lincoln's neighborhood at the time was due to that river. Um, It was just about 17 miles south of the Lincoln home. It was, of course, a major source of transportation. Um, And I like this one story in particular that really shows the commerce that was available there and how it affected Lincoln. When steamboats would go by on the river, they couldn't come to the shore because they'd get grounded. And so they had to pay people if you wanted to go to the steamboat on a little canoe or raft like Lincoln is standing on here to take them to the steamboat and that was a good opportunity for locals to make money and Lincoln obviously caught on to this and so he did that once. He took two uh, folks out to the steamboat and as they got on the steamboat they tossed two half silver dollars into the boat and this was a life changing moment for Abraham Lincoln. He said I could scarcely believe my eyes. You may think it was a very little thing but it was a most important incident in my life. I could scarcely believe that I, a poor boy, had earned a dollar in less than a day. The world seemed wider and fairer before me. I was a more hopeful and confident being from that time. The freedom that Indiana offered to pursue dreams, even simple dreams like this, to make your own way in the world, had a really profound effect on Lincoln and his view of the economy. And that view followed him all the way to the White House and, in fact, shaped his view of things like slavery. When he realized how important it was to be able to keep the money that you earned and profit from your own work, it affected his view when he saw slaves having to work without the benefit of getting to keep the money, like he did here, right in this river right outside our window. Lincoln saw all sorts of farming transactions, diverse ways to earn a living. Um, obviously farm goods, but also things like wood, um, things like newspapers that were uh, sold at the commerce places that he was working. So he had a lot of opportunity to see things um, from all over. I mentioned newspapers because he had the opportunity to read newspapers from New Orleans to Pittsburgh um, as they passed through the river um, and would come and trade and barter and he devoured those as much as he could. I have to give a Uh, attention here to Nancy Hanks Lincoln. Um, This was a critical person, obviously. Mother is important to all of us. Uh, But her influence on Lincoln um, was particularly important. He viewed her as the source for so much of who he would become. But what I think is important to note here is that she had quite a checkered history. Uh, Lincoln's mother gave birth to... I'm sorry, Lincoln's grandmother gave birth to Nancy while she was out of wedlock. And then in turn... Lincoln's grandmother, uh, Nancy's mother, had a second daughter out of wedlock. Now, in the late 1700s, that activity brought unbearable shame on the entire family. Even today, a lot of people are going to look sideways at somebody in that situation. In the late 1700s, it was just a no go. And so that actually prompted Nancy's family to move from the East Coast to Indiana in large part because of that unbearable shame. But tragedy stuck, and I should note by the way, that that shame followed Lincoln all the way to the White House. It was something he was constantly scared, uh, ashamed of, something he felt like he constantly had to fight against. And that because at the time, and again even today some people find that if your parents or your grandparents have a certain character, we suddenly and immediately believe that the child and the grandchild has those same characteristics. Lincoln did not want that to happen to him. and he was concerned because people started associating that with Nancy as well. And by all accounts, by the way, Nancy was a, a wonderful, upright uh, person. But tragedy struck the Lincoln family in October 1818 when Nancy died of milk sickness, which was caused when cows eat contaminated white snake root, which is what's on the right there. Um, and then it passed, that poison passes through their milk. Nobody understood at the time what caused that illness, uh, but that's what happened. And Abraham was 9 years old at the time. His sister was 11 and people will often remark and think that that death is what caused a lot of Lincoln's depression later in life. Now, he had certainly a lot of other uh, tragedies that followed him, but this is, in large part, what started it. Now, after Nancy's death, the household consisted of Thomas, the father who was 40, Sarah and Abraham, as well as an orphan cousin named uh, Dennis Hanks, and At the time, on the frontier, that could have been a death nail for a single father or a single parent of any gender to have to take care of two young children. And so, Thomas, realizing as a matter of survival he couldn't handle this on his own, he set out back to Kentucky to find himself a wife and had heard that Sally Johnson, an old friend, had recently become a widow. Well, doesn't that work out very nicely for both Sally and Thomas? Uh, And so the two of them um, quickly bonded. Uh, Sally, and it says Sarah here, but she went by Sally. Her legal name was Sarah. And uh, Sally moved back to Indiana with Thomas and became a stepmother, therefore, to Abraham Lincoln. Sally was critical to Lincoln's development because, unlike Lincoln's father, Sally really encouraged Abraham's eagerness to learn, to read, and, and then shared her own books with Lincoln. And years later, she compared Lincoln to her own biological son, John Johnson. And I think this is very telling. Both were good boys, but I must say, both now being dead, that Abe was the best boy I ever saw or ever expect to see. Um, Placing her stepson over her own biological son, I think, says quite a lot about Abraham, but also about Sally and how she was willing to view a stepchild no differently um, than her own. Unfortunately, tragedy wasn't done with the Lincoln family because Lincoln's sister in January 1828 passed away as well um, from giving childbirth. Uh, She was 21 at the time. Uh, She was born into the Grigsby family, um, and that caused a lot of tension because the Grigsby family were very close to the Lincolns, and Abraham blamed the Grigsby family for not calling a doctor soon enough for her death. And that also affected him for, for quite a while. So just imagine the hardship that Lincoln has c- gone through. Seven years old, traveling to Indiana in the wilderness in the middle of winter, living in a three-sided lean-to. Um, your mother dies when you're young. You suddenly get a step, stepmother. And oh, by the way, when your father leaves you in the wilderness with a 19-year-old cousin and your sister who's two years old, he's going to get pretty close to his sister. And this sister, who had become effectively a surrogate mother to him, is now dead. Um, so he's gone through a lot in Indiana, and that kind of tragedy and learning to deal with that tragedy has shaped a lot of who he is. In 1828, the same year his sister has passed away, Lincoln takes another very momentous step and goes on a flatboat trip from here in Indiana to New Orleans. And he goes there to sell, um, produce, for the local uh, store and this is a, a, a big responsibility for somebody that's 19 years old I'm telling you if I took a boat that had all of the modern amenities from Evansville uh, to New Orleans I'd be in a lot of trouble uh, but imagine a boat that's really effectively a, a, a flat boat um, it's a totally different ball game. that's a lot of responsibility to take it all the way down there and sell it and the trip to New Orleans is not an easy one uh, not only because of the um, natural Disasters that could happen sandbars, tree snags and eddies There's also steamboats that are coming up and down, but the Ohio River at the time also had pirates Um, uh, Believe it or not and you can actually go down to southern Illinois and there are some caves where pirates would hide out Um, And that was something he had to guard against believe it or not. That's exactly uh, what happened on their way south um, because they ran into pirates. In fact, the pirates in this situation that they ran into were recently freed slaves um, who needed to find a way to survive, and that was an easy way to get some, uh, some food, uh, some provisions, and, and resell it. And so they were attacked. Fortunately, Lincoln and Mr. Gentry fought them off, but they made their way to New Orleans. Um, now, while they were there, I also have to point out that this was in New Orleans. They sold the goods, Uh, Lincoln saw for the very first time slave trade. Um, That also had a very profound effect on Lincoln, obviously, and uh, he thought that was a travesty. I think the juxtaposition was always very interesting to me. For somebody who grew up in a fairly rural Indiana, did not see a lot of African-Americans, and one of his first major interactions with an African-American is being attacked on the river by African-American pirates, but then sees African-Americans enslaved, sold into slavery, and he does not have the racism that I think so many people at the time would have had, had that been their first interaction with a group of people. Instead, he resolves then, um, as he had before, to um, do something about slavery and, and, and at least take a stand against it. Now, Lincoln did say that his education in Indiana was defective uh, because it was no more than a year, and people and historians have largely... Um, uh, snagged onto this and again go back to that myth and characterization that I talked to at the beginning about how horrible Indiana was for learning how we're all ignorant but I have to point out that the self-education he got here was due largely because of the books the educated people that he had in the area there were a lot of um, very intelligent people in the area I mentioned New Harmony there were judges there were lawyers there were doctors there were a lot of people that he had an opportunity to learn from and took every opportunity and advantage he could to do that Here's a book that I have up front that Tim mentioned at the beginning, um, Abe's Youth, and to better tell the story of Lincoln's time in Indiana, uh, a good friend of mine, Bill Bartelt, who is truly the world's leading expert on Lincoln's time in Indiana, decided to piece together some of the best scholarship of the Southwestern Indiana Historical Society. And that was an organization that exists today, but a prior iteration of that organization that did a lot of really important work in this field was between 1920 and 1939 and they really sought to tell the full story of Lincoln's life here in Indiana and so they had about 369 presentations during that period and about 217 papers but the fruits of their labor um, were largely forgotten and so we put together a book that collects a lot of those that really tells not so much about Lincoln's biography, but the context of the time. Um, we also have um, put together I, this book, Abraham Lincoln's Wilderness Year Years, because I was convinced that there was still much work to be done in compiling source material for this Lincoln's period in this life. Here I collect a lot of uh, the most significant scholarship from J. Edward Murr, who was an, a, a pastor who spent a lot of time in this area, meeting with, learning, and getting to know a lot of the uh, neighbors and the family members who knew uh, Lincoln's uh, uh, boyhood associates. He was born near Corridan, which is important because uh, Murr knew in that area a lot of Lincoln's extended family. Lincoln's uncle lived in Corridan, and so he felt like he started to know a lot about Lincoln's family. And when he came here and was stationed here as a Methodist circuit rider, Uh, It was an opportunity for Reverend Murr to really get to know them. And so he would take these oral stories that he heard from people about what Lincoln's life was and would write it down. Unfortunately, at the time uh, that people were writing Lincoln's biography, they were relying on just a few uh, historians who didn't really tell this full story. You had William Herndon, who I mentioned at the get-go, was Lincoln's law partner certainly knew Lincoln very well, but in terms of talking to the locals here, he spent all of effectively one day, not really enough information. His other source was this gentleman, Dennis Hanks, who was Lincoln's cousin I mentioned earlier and lived with Lincoln for a while. Great source in terms of knowing Lincoln very well, but he was also somebody who liked to embellish the truth. Uh, Dennis Hanks, for instance, took credit for teaching Lincoln how to read. Um, There were quite a lot of other things that most historians seem to question. So a lot of what you hear from Dennis Hanks has to be taken with a grain of salt. And then you have Ida Tarbell. Now Ida was the most popular national expert on Abraham Lincoln at the time in the early 1900s when people were first beginning to write biographies about Abraham Lincoln. Incredibly well known, incredibly popular, and when she wrote a Lincoln book it automatically became a bestseller. But Murr really criticized her because she, too, also only spent effectively one day in the area, and so she didn't have a really good sense or grasp of the area. Far too many of these initial Lincoln historians really loved to take the same story that Lincoln would often tell to promote his uh, political uh, gravitas, and that was that he really ascended from really low ranks. Um, He started off with something terrible, but by his own hands and by his own determination, he was able to rise up. There is absolutely some truth to that, but it really does a disservice to Indiana and really glosses over so much of what I talked about. The growth at the time, the tremendous economic um, activity, the population growth, um, as well as the educational opportunities that he had at the time. And so Murr was pushing against that as well and sought out to correct um, that history as well again, Murr really felt like he was the one um, that could best tell the story. He said, I became intimately acquainted with the many who had been neighbors and boyhood associates of the future president. It was my rare fortune to thus know and frequently converse with those who had often been in the Lincoln cabin. That's a pretty good source to work with. Having said that, I do have to point out that Murr was a little biased himself. He was pushing against uh, uh, a characterization of Indiana at the time that was negative. And so he also has to be taken with a grain of salt. That's what we historians have to do so well. You have to take your sources into uh, context and um, really place it within the broader framework, which Murr does. Albert Beveridge, the guy I mentioned earlier, who said so many negative things about Indiana. What's interesting is he later, after he said a lot of these things, went to write a biography um, on Lincoln. And, and Albert Beveridge was a senator who wasn't, he wasn't just a senator. He actually wrote popular history, too. He wrote a uh, popular four-volume history of uh, the first U.S. Supreme Court Justice, John Marshall, which won a Pulitzer Prize. So he set out to do something similar for Abraham Lincoln, another four-volume history. Unfortunately, he died and only got to two volumes. Uh, but in the first two volumes he was writing, he wrote and corresponded frequently with, with Murr, the same person whose book um, I edited here. Um, and be- just goes to show how trusted Edward Murr was on this period of Lincoln's life. So the book that um, I have here uh, really can be broken down into three parts. The first is his first book-length manuscript, which has never been published before. Uh, Until now, it languished for a long time in the archives at DePaul University, so it's here as part one. Part two offers a series of essays that he wrote about Lincoln's time in Indiana, and then part three are letters between uh, Murr and um, Senator Beveridge. Why Lincoln? So why should we continue to talk about Lincoln, um, and in particular, his time here in Indiana? And I want to end with this. Why, why w- Josh, why do you care about Lincoln? How did you get involved? Why should other people care? Um, in 1948, William Faulkner wrote a novel, Intruder in the Dust. And for those of you that have watched um, the, the great PBS documentary on the Civil War, you'll see Shelby Foote quote this. Uh, he says, moments before the disastrous Pickett's Charge in 1863, when the Confederacy hadn't quite yet lost the Civil War, Faulkner says, for every Southern boy 14 years old, there is that instant when it's not yet two o'clock on that July afternoon. They're thinking about being there in the South. Now, I think that glosses over what black boys in the South would think. They're not quite thinking about fighting for the Confederacy, of course, right? But I think the larger point is when he was writing in the 1940s and the 1950s, the Civil War was prominent in terms of the psyche of the American public. People were talking about it. There were Civil War roundtables Some still exist, but that were packed. Rooms, crowds this size that were two, three times the size that would meet monthly to talk about the Civil War. Um, It was popular, but has that still mattered? I mean, do do we still talk about that? What meaning does that have for us in our multi-ethnic, non-slave society? Well, I want to offer some reasons that I think it's important to still study it. For one thing, the line to immigrate to this country is longer than those in every other country on earth. And it is that way, in large part, because of Abraham Lincoln and the Civil War. It's true that the United States was founded on its Constitution, uh, but the Civil War really sealed us, I think, as a nation. As Shelby Foote said, uh, before the Civil War, people would say, these United States, because we referred to the states separately. After the Civil War, everyone started to say, the United States. We were suddenly one nation. America is a group of people and not just an idea, but it's a nation with a particular history, connected by pe- by particular people. And to understand our nation, it's not enough to simply understand principles like equality, liberty, as important as those things are. We also have to understand how those principles were put into action, how they were developed, and how they were put as forces into our national life. And I think Lincoln helps bind those ideals, those abstract ideals, in tangible ways. He embodies it. Things like liberty, equality, sacrifice, respect for the rule of law, humility, even humor, those aren't just abstract ideas when we learn about them through the embodiment that Lincoln provides. Second point, and I've got three reasons I think Lincoln matters. Here's the second. Over 160 years later, Lincoln, I think, still inspires hope. Americans have always thought to rise above and move beyond the conditions we're given at birth. And that's, of course, not true in every nation. To be an American is to believe that the status we're born into is never the final word. We have a spirit of striving, a spirit of hope that goes back to the very beginning. And I think, again, Lincoln really, Lincoln and his Hoosier roots really embody that spirit. And finally, uh, Lincoln offers a great story. Our narratives, large and small, are really an essential way that Americans and humans in general make sense of the world. We like to tell histories and tell stories uh, because that's who we are. We're story-making creatures and it helps us find meaning in the flow of events. Well, Let me offer this story or this uh, thought about Lincoln um, that plays into that. Statesmanship often requires courage and imagination, even daring, especially when the outcome seems doubtful. And we're accustomed to thinking about Lincoln in heroic terms, but we really often forget about the depth and the breadth of his unpopularity during his lifetime and while he was in office. Few people were more comprehensively disdained, loathed, and underestimated. Certainly the Southerners didn't like him, we know that. But even in the North, he was in many ways a hated person. One of his biographers, David Donald, says, Lincoln's own associates thought him a simple Susan, a baboon, an aimless punster, and a smutty joker. An abolitionist, Wendell Phillips, called him a huckster in politics, a first-rate, second-rate man. And George McClellan, who was a general that ran against him in the 1864 election, openly disdained him as a well-meaning baboon. Now, for much of that election year in 1864, Lincoln was convinced, with very good reason, that he was doomed to lose the election. Everyone, including Lincoln, thought he was going to lose. And of course, that had incalculable uh, effects for him, the nation as a whole. And we have to remember, I think, and this is the story that I think Lincoln can teach us, and that's rooted in his Hoosier roots here in Indiana, that that's not how history happens. It's not like a Hollywood movie where the background music swells and the crowd in the room applause and leaps to its feet as the orator dispenses timeless words and the camera pans the room full of smiling faces. In real history, the background music does not swell, the trumpets do not sound, and the carping critics often seem louder than the applause. The leader or the soldier has to wonder whether they're acting in vain, whether the criticisms of others are in fact true, and whether time will judge them sharply whether their sacrifice will count for anything. Few leaders have felt that as clearly, I think, as Lincoln, and he overcame it in a great way. Hope is what he offers. Thank you so much. Thank you, Josh. Thanks for joining us for this week's public affairs program from all of us from Midwest Communications in Evansville, Indiana. Have a great week.